All right, and we're episode, where are we at? 18. All 18, right. Marcus. 18. The big one eight. Ochenta. No. DAC Ocho. Oh, <laughs> episode 80. His wife, his wife has an ESL teacher, right? Yes. But that doesn't... Eddie, don't get Wait, me started. That's a can on. of worms. Let's not. Wait a minute. You don't, you, know, you don't know 18 in Spanish? You can't assume that the EL person, number one, you can't assume that they speak a different language, number one. Number two, it's all languages, not just Spanish. True that. I feel like that'd That's be the true. predominant one. I, no, just let, let's start. <laughs> Take her easy, Edward. <laughs> Welcome to episode 18 of the Canvas Casters podcast. Today we have Dr. Travis Thurston, who is the Assistant Director in the Office of Empowering Teaching Excellence at Utah State University. Travis directs all professional development programming for ETE, developing and facilitating seminars, workshops, and teacher conference focused on the improvement of teaching. He also created and facilitates the ETE 10 Professional Learning Pathways Micro-Credentialing Program to support instructors in engaging in instructional development and reflective teaching practices. Travis is an active member of the Canvas community and has presented about his work at InstructureCon three times, along with an undergrad degree in history teaching and physical education coaching from Utah State University. Travis holds a Master's of Education Technology degree from Boise State University with a grad certificate in online teaching. Travis also holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction from Utah State University, and Travis's research focuses on improving digital instruction. Travis and his wife, Jenny, have four children whose athletic and academic endeavors contribute to his perspectives on teaching and learning. Travis. Whew. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. What an intro, by the way. Hey, <laughs> outstanding stuff there. Let's cut to the chase here, Travis. Now, that's that's quite a bio there. Uh, so we'll get into that. We'll get into all that stuff uh, shortly. But you're in Utah and there was an earthquake yesterday and we're dealing with all of the things in the world right now. And then uh, the sort of the cherry on top for you folks in Utah was this, what was it? 5.7. Yeah, I think that's right. It was a 5.7, just, just right outside of Salt Lake city. Um, I, I think it was best summarized, uh, in a post I saw on social media, you know, saying, you know, Utah got a lot of attention when a couple of Utah jazz players, uh, had confirmed cases of COVID-19 and, and NBA decided to suspend the season. And then, you know, things kind of moved on and then Utah was like, Hey, attention back over here you know we're gonna we're gonna shake things up and get the attention back over here for a while utah's <laughs> typically not in the spotlight that's so true that's absolutely yeah true. generally you don't think of utah as sort of the uh the needy of attention <laughs> type but lately yeesh we woke up i mean we're we're about 90 minutes away from Salt Lake City. So um, as far as the earthquake goes, it, it shook us out of bed enough. Um, get our blood moving in the morning. But, you know, there was there was some significant damage down in Salt Lake. As we've talked about before, uh, Canvas headquarters is there in structure. But they didn't have any uh, disruptions in, in their service. So that was good. Travis, you have extensive knowledge and background in educational development. What we're most excited about is your work through those professional learning pathways. Tell us about the process at Utah State and how you're facilitating that with your learners. That's a great question. So 
one of the things that, uh, so I started about seven years ago at Utah State, uh, starting this program that we call ETE, which is Empowering Teaching Excellence. And we started out with some workshops and some seminars and things like that. Um, but as we know, um, one-off workshops are, are not super effective for changing instruction in the classroom. So we wanted to create a way to kind of tie this all together. And I felt like one of the best ways we could do that was by creating this uh, micro-credentialing program, um, which we're calling, which we call ETE 10. And we create these different professional learning pathways. And, and it really actually boils down to three different concepts. So one is engage. And in engage, that's where we're actually having instructors participate in a workshop or uh, listen to a podcast or uh, you know even read an, an ebook on teaching and then really be intentional in their reflection and think about how they could use some of the things from the workshop or you know whatever the content is and actually try it out in their teaching. So the second one is implement right and that's where they actually try this out in the classroom. They, uh, they try a new teaching practice uh, or, and or uh, they collect evidence to see uh, these different things that they're trying in the classroom, how it impacts student learning. And then they have to demonstrate that and submit that to earn their, their implement level badge. And then the third is contribute. And this is a way that we encourage our instructors to keep engaging with our, our community. Uh, so contribute level is where they then come back to a seminar or a conference and they share about what they're doing in their classroom. And they, and they share with their peers on you know tips and tricks. This worked really well. This maybe didn't work quite so well. So this is how I would adapt it the next time. And we engage them in this, this ongoing and continuous process of intentional teaching and, and being reflective in the way that we're, we're experiencing and, and planning. What sort of things happened at the beginning? You touched upon some things there, this kind of three-tiered approach. But as you were developing this system, what kind of research and development did you do kind of going into it, knowing that there were going to be probably some growing pains, if you had any? Yeah, I. So we first started out kind of like in this this emulation phase where we looked at what other programs were doing. Uh, Boise State was a big one. We wanted to see what they were trying. And then there were several others who were actually doing badging that we kind of uh, took took some ideas from as well. The biggest thing for me was. Uh, I actually started developing this program as I was uh, working through my PhD program. And so I, I was actually diving into the research surrounding uh, digital badging and professional development and all of that. So I did uh, some extensive uh, some extensive research. And in fact, uh, kind of the culmination of my, my dissertation was was this concept of what I call an architecture of engagement where we engage instructors in this this process, the engage, implement, contribute, and it kind of all comes together through through three three trusses that kind of fill the gaps between those three concepts. And that's instructional development, instructional design, and instructional practice. So this this idea that we're 
we engage in evidence-based um, literature and practice. We're intentional in the way that we plan to try that out in the classroom. And then when we're actually doing the teaching, we're being reflective as well to think about how we would adapt for our, our students or how we would um, actually share back to our community in, in informal and formal ways. What I, as a teacher who's, you know, I've, I'm, I'll say it, I'm, I'm of, an, of an age and uh, I've been doing it a while. Uh, I think one of the things that's tricky, but what I can respect about what you have designed and what you're sort of trying to implement, this idea of introspection is so tough because it's one of those things that I feel like is easier said than done. Right. Um, from an individualized perspective, for me to go in and teach a lesson that I designed, uh, try something that, you know, maybe gets out of my comfort zone and then, you know, be introspective about it is really, really challenging. With that in mind, kind of two questions, really. Number one, is there do you have any element of other parties uh, having an influence on what the teacher ultimately considers uh, when when doing their introspection and their reflection? Is there an element from the outside that can assist with that? And then sort of piggybacking from that, uh, what kind of things are you doing within Canvas that can maybe sort of facilitate all of that working well? Yeah, great question. So we, we just switched uh, from, we were using Credly, but we just switched to Badger um, about a year ago or so which as we know, integrates nicely into Canvas. So we've been using uh, the LTI. And the way that works is that it has to be attached to um, a module requirement to kind of uh, auto award the badge, right? So whatever you set your module requirements as. And so what we've done there is with all of our different badges, we've created the assignments um, in Canvas with some of these very um, specific reflective prompts. So as our instructors go in there, they they look through these prompts and they submit the reflection right there in Canvas. And then that gives us a chance. So our, our team at Empowering Teaching Excellence, and also we have a, a committee of faculty that can go in and, and look at those responses and provide some formative feedback. Um, and then we have different forums uh, throughout the year. Uh, we have some that we call learning circles, which is a small group of uh, eight to 10 faculty and they get to sit down and, and that becomes a real safe space for us to, to, to be vulnerable, right? Like, hey, I, I tried this out and it bombed. That, that absolutely happens in teaching. So it's, it's that combination between using Canvas uh, to submit and provide feedback to our instructors, but also having uh, those, those forums, those, those safe spaces where we can sit down as a community in small groups and, and just work through some of the, the sticky points. You know, it, teaching is, is hard, and when you're, especially when you're trying something new, uh, it can feel like you're just kind of muddling through. So it's it's really helpful to have uh, individuals who can support each other. I was hoping that that was a part of the the program, uh, and, and because uh, and Eddie can attest to this, we've talked about it before, and we're actually participating in a uh, sort of a teacher leadership thing here in Indiana. And in our experience, just you know, over the the last 
year or so in that program, it's all about the perception, right? It, our perception of what we're doing is oftentimes not the perception that others would have, you know. So, you know, you talked about uh, Travis, you talked about, a, you know, a, a professor or a teacher trying something and then Oh, it bombed. Well, very well could have bombed. Right. But sometimes other eyes and minds on that same scenario might see it differently. And where I might think something bombed, maybe others that view it may be like, actually, it didn't bomb at all. And here's why. And so those perspectives are so helpful and so important. So I, I love that there's an element of that that learning circle in, in, your, in your program. We're our own worst critics, right? So uh, I think I think as human beings and teachers, we're pretty hard on ourselves when it comes to what is successful and what isn't successful. And I love the process that Travis has kind of outlined here. And if you have a chance, I, I know that he has shared some of the videos on what it looks like. But Travis, you talk specifically about badging, which is awesome. And Badger is a great tool. And it's the one tool that we use at C9. The process that you show seems to be pretty easy to set up. And I would encourage listeners to go check it out. We're actually going to put the links in the show notes so you can see kind of the heavy lifting that Travis has done here. Can you talk specifically about how mastery paths also helped you accomplish some of those goals? Because as we know, kind of mastery paths and badging might live in kind of a canvas holy matrimony. (laughs) Holy matrimony, Batman. Yeah, originally when we were uh, trying with Credly, when we originally started this out, this concept of mastery paths was was really helpful for us to think about every instructor has has different needs, right? And they have different interests. And so rather than thinking about how we can get everyone to the same competency level, we wanted to try to see how we could provide different different opportunities and and different learning experiences that would fit into their own individual needs. And and so creating this concept of pathways became really important for us. As we switched um, over to Badger, we actually utilized their, their pathways LTI. And this was actually really cool for me. And, and it actually took us some it, it allowed us some time to actually step back and reflect on what we were doing and make some intentional changes in our own program uh, because Credly and Badger don't really behave the same way. And so as we were making adjustments to fit the way that Badger works, we also said, well, hey, let's, let's think about this. We can actually create different tracks that are specific to different uh, interests. But we can also still provide this this individualized path. And so one of the things we added in recently was a plan your pathway activity where we sit down with an instructor and we say, hey, what what are your goals? What are your interests? And let's find a way to see what pathway you would work best for you. Really speaks to personalized learning, right? Is that essentially you are forming them in a discussion that allows the teacher to decide? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we kind of, uh, it's an overarching, um, I guess, theoretical piece for us is this idea of self-determination theory. And one of the key concepts in self-determination theory is autonomy support. And that's that concept where we have we have structures that are supporting us, but within those structures, we need to feel like we have choice, that we're agents of our own learning. 
And when we, when we feel that autonomy as individuals, we're much more motivated to engage and participate and improve. But those structures are there to help support along the way, right? We're not just like, hey, go for it. You know, you got this, go for it, right? We, we're there to provide some supports and structure to that process as well. Before we take the break, I, I like that you, we talked about it in your bio too, that, that your kids kind of shape the way you look at teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And I know that, I have a five-year-old. I started teaching uh, 10 years ago. What I want to say is I have a much different perspective now than I did when I did not have kids. So I'm glad that you kind of spoke to that. And how has that changed your perspective in teaching and learning? Um, It's it's changed my perspective a lot, um, to be honest. I mean, I started out as a high school teacher mainly because I wanted to be a teacher, but elementary kids scared me. And yeah, me too. <laughs> right. My wife actually teaches third grade, so it's, we don't do – I always remember we had a school play, and they brought their kids in to, to watch the high school play uh, during school hours. And one of the kids raised their hand, and they said, um, you know, I have to go potty. And then we were like, we don't do potty at this level, so one of the <laughs> elementary teachers please take over at this point in time. <laughs> it's really been cool. I mean, my two oldest are now in sixth grade and fourth grade, both in – in first grade started into the Chinese dual language immersion program that they have here in our school district and seeing the way that the district has has designed that program and seeing how my kids have kind of navigated through that it's it's been so interesting um, you know at first they were sending home some some math worksheets in Chinese I have no idea how to help my kid with right. math and Chinese, right? <laughs> right. Throughout the years, we've been, we traveled, you know, to like Yellowstone National Park and there's a lot of folks there visiting from China and my, and my kids can, can go up and like carry on a conversation in Chinese with these folks from China. Like it's, it's way cool. So seeing, so, you know, seeing them learning in school, navigating through, through this dual language, especially has been really interesting. I think a lot of my perspectives on education also come from, from the athletic world, from coaching. All right. So basketball is my love, right? Like I love basketball. And when I was a, when I was a high school teacher, I, I was also one of the girls basketball coaches at our school, but my kids love soccer, right? They're, they're way into soccer. And so I've, I've helped out in coaching their teams too, and had a chance uh, the last couple of years, especially to work with a coach who is from Peru and he coaches these kids in soccer here in our Valley. The lessons that he has taught me on the importance of caring about kids in the process has has really impacted my view of education and the importance of thinking about how we help each individual on the team it's really easy as a coach sometimes to just focus on those two or three kids that are your superstars right and and try to help them and and he has helped me see the importance of seeing every individual and and seeing their needs and then helping to facilitate learning at all levels. The coaching thing is huge. Um, I, I would I'd be in that that camp as well, and Eddie would be too. Uh, both of us have coaching experience, and Eddie was a, a speech and debate coach, golf coach. I coached basketball, soccer, all a whole bunch of stuff. And, and I have always believed that exactly what you were saying, Travis. That that 
ability that, you know, coaching, you don't have to, I'm not suggesting that every teacher should try coaching, but that experience truly is something that I feel is a huge benefit to folks that have done it and had that opportunity in some way, uh, because you're exactly right. That approach to knowing how to speak to each in my case, each soccer player, um, no learning their style of how they can be coached or how they perform best, you know, based on how I communicate with them, that sort of fine tuning in a coaching environment, our ability to take that and then put it into a, you know, a conventional classroom or even an online classroom and personalize the way that we communicate is huge. And I, I, I wish that everybody had that opportunity uh, to, to benefit from that, because I really feel like that's a, a large part of uh, who I am as an educator, for sure. The moment that I started to get more active and involved in it, just organizations and clubs, like it doesn't have to be a sport, get involved outside of the classroom in your organization. And I think you will find that um, your relationships improve, your teaching improves, and that perspective on the individual will really just enhance your uh, teaching ability. Let's take a quick break with Travis at Utah State University. And when we return, Travis gets into the going online in a hurry discussion and what's in his canvas backpack. Stay tuned. InstructureCon 2020 is sure to be an amazing opportunity for fun and learning. First of all, this year's conference is in Nashville. Let's just come out and say that if you can't have a blast in Nashville, then come find us. Not only will you get to continue down the road towards becoming Canvas Jedi by attending amazing sessions by some of the foremost Canvas Jedi in the galaxy, but there's more! The Canvas casters will be there providing live content throughout the conference. And don't forget to register for the Unconference on Friday, July 31st. This year's Unconference will be hosted by the Canvas princess herself, Kona Jones. And a new addition to this year's event will be our very own, speaking to you right now, Marcus Painter co-hosting because every Princess Leia needs her Chewbacca. I thought we took that out. No. Damn. No, that definitely needs to stay in. No, stop, <laughs> Travis. Don't encourage this behavior. Also, nominations are now being accepted for the 2020 K-12 and Higher Education Educator of the Year Awards. Do you know an amazing educator in your building, district, college, university, or organization who is redefining the traditional classroom through their use of Canvas LMS? Is that same educator inspiring creativity, curiosity, and achievement in their students? If so, please consider nominating this outstanding educator by visiting the Canvas blog and completing your nomination today. Or go to the show notes of this episode for the direct link. We shine better when we shine together. Did you write that line too? I did. I, I'm telling you, Eddie, you don't know what you got with me, buddy. I did. We should have wrote a book. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Everyone from pre-K to higher ed is hustling, if not sprinting downhill, to go online as soon as possible. 
I know that myself and many others in uh, in this field have an intimate knowledge of this type of learning, and we have tons of thoughts on what this might mean, not only in the interim time, but also in the long term. So, Travis, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of how this is all going to play out for folks that are involved in online learning? Uh, what is your concerns? What are your concerns or thoughts about online curriculum development going forward? I, I think this moment for us is is a moment to think about how we're preparing our educators to be able to handle situations like this. Right. That, I mean, we're in we're in crisis mode right now. There's there's very little that allows us to be intentional with the way we're designing, with the way that we're trying to engage our students. And so I think for me, this moment is is really about flexibility. We, we've got to survive the moment. And that means being flexible with our students, being flexible with our expectations and, and trying to help our students through. Once we get through this, and, and we will get through this, uh, we need to start thinking about how we need to train everyone up. What supports, what resources can we give our educators to be able uh, to handle a situation like this moving forward? I know for me, I'm, I'm thinking about right now, all right, we, we have one one summer to get a thousand instructors at USU prepared for what might be coming fall 2020. All right, we we have so much work to do uh, to help support our our instructors right now. I mean, what we're doing. I, I'm watching my kids right now try to navigate this at home, right? <laughs> and we're we're doing our best. We're doing our best to survive right now. And um, and I have I have a background in education, and uh, my wife has a background in in teaching kids. And it's hard. It's it's hard as parents right now. And so I think I think for us and for for all of the teachers out there is just to know that right now we're trying to support our students in any way we can. And and that means probably relying on tools and, and technologies that we're already familiar with rather than trying to jump into a whole bunch of new things. I told my teachers, this isn't a great time to start learning something new. <laughs> uh, for one, you know, especially something that we've never talked about. I had a couple had a couple instances where I got some emails from not in my district, but some other districts that said, hey, I'm really thinking about trying this thing. And I know you have some expertise. Could you help? And I'm like, oh, I hate to say, like, stick to what you're good at. But at some point you have no other support than what you know, what you can rely on or what you can fall back on. It's definitely been a message that I've tried to hit home with. And Marcus kind of jumped into and said, amen, because this has got to be the message where it has to be simple is better, less is better. Don't necessarily believe that it's going to be a success right out of the gate once you kind of learn a new tool. Keyword that I heard there was, you know, flexibility. And I've seen a few folks on uh, out there on Twitter uh, saying similar things. And we, Eddie and I, of course, have been sort of on that bandwagon as well, uh, you know, showing flexibility, giving some grace uh, to the situation and to the environments that you know, our students are now functioning in. You know, people take for granted that, 
you know, oh, these kids are at home. They're much more comfortable at home than they are at school. And, and that's frankly not the case in, in probably the majority. Uh, our kids that are no longer at school following the protocols, doing the things in the ways that they are accustomed are now at home and they are basically having to relearn how to do school in this completely uh, different environment. There's comfort there, but it's a different kind of comfort. That's not where they're comfortable in learning. Uh, so I, I love the, the, the point of view that Travis has got there with, you know, being flexible, understanding the situation and, and just, you know, show the kids, show each other some grace. Um, and then, yeah. And then like Eddie said, you know, stick to the good stuff, stick to what you know at this point, help establish that um, comfort zone uh, in learning with your kids, even if it's in this online space. And then, yes, because we're relatively certain that we've got some time on our hands here, then yes, teachers, absolutely find a thing, vet that thing, try it out. Don't be scared to, to, to fail at it. Um, but, you know, you can get out there and start getting creative um, in due time. But I do think it's really important to set that established. Here's what we do and here's how we're going to do it in the early stages. I, I really like that because I think this does frame for us. Um, a, a helpful starting point moving forward, right? We, we learn a lot when we try something out. And so this is a moment where a lot of us are just trying something out to see how it works. And so over the next few months, we can go back and reflect and be like, all right, this one thing worked really well. These other things, maybe not so much. So what are the things that I want to learn before I start teaching again? Um, to improve that experience for my students? And what are some of the things I know now that I, I'm not going to try this next time around? Travis, how do you define success within your institution with your educators, specifically on a hybrid or online course development uh, professional learning platform or, or pathway? What does a successful online learning environment look like in your mind? Um, a successful online learning environment for me is, is one where we are, are supporting our students. We, uh, Michelle Pekansky Brock talks about this idea of humanizing the learning, um, humanizing online for our students. And, and really what that means is, is that we're being present for our students. Um, this concept of instructor presence that comes out of the community of inquiry framework. It's kind of this combination between uh, course design and course facilitation, right? So that instructor presence is that we've been intentional in the way that we've created the environment, but we're also being very intentional in the way that we're inhabiting that environment and that we're facilitating learning for our students. On online teaching, all right, teaching in general is hard. Online teaching is a, a different beast, right? It's, it's just different. And, and so you have to really find ways to communicate and, and be, be present for your students. It's completely different. For me, being, you know, moving from being a, a classroom teacher in high school to teaching online in, in higher ed, one of the things I really missed was, was being there in the classroom with my kids, 
right? Being able to see them, being able to interact with them. Um, but but what I've found and what I try to help um, other instructors see is that you can still have that connection with your students. It's, it's just different. And what ends up happening a lot is that you build those individual connections with your students, right? I'm reaching out to my students on an individual basis, um, giving them feedback, sharing interesting articles I'm seeing that I know that they have an interest in and, and making those types of connections. So for me, a, a successful online uh, learning experience is the fact that not only have we designed this environment in a very intentional way that is easy for students to navigate, but we're also there. We're present for our students. I feel like it presents almost an opportunity because in the daily um, chaos that is typically in a classroom, that chaos tends to get overwhelming to some individuals. So it's hard to take that individualized approach to your students and build those relationships. And I think the online environment lends itself to really build up those personal relationships and allow you to spend time either differentiating the learning or providing, you know, personalized feedback back. And that's, I, honestly, I think that is why I, I'm, I'm optimistic about what comes out of the next two, three months when teachers are kind of forced into this situation, because I do think it presents itself an unbelievable opportunity to start doing some of the things that makes teaching great. I think for us, it really is a chance for us to think about how are we going to start really intentionally designing our courses for, for our students. And, and for me, so we can take this idea of our architecture of engagement and, and put it on a micro level within our own classroom, right? How are we engaging our students with the content? How are we having them apply this? How are we having them implement this? Um, and then how are we having them contribute back to the class and, and contribute outside the walls of the classroom as well. As a listener to the show, as a Canvas person, you know that we've got our go-to question here. Uh, and I, I, I feel like if I, if I was jotting this down on a post-it note, I feel like I might know already, but let us know, let the listeners know what is in your Canvas backpack. Yeah, I love this question. So for me, I, I love keeping it uh, straightforward. So really the, the discussion forums for me is my favorite thing to work with um, in a classroom because it's so flexible. You can use the discussion feature in so many different ways. Um, you can use it for a gallery walk, right? Students are, are posting their work, they're sharing insights. Um, you can use the discussion forum as a space uh, for peer review. You can use the discussion forum in, in all sorts of these uh, interesting ways. One way that I have used uh, the discussion forum and, and helped others as well to implement this is this concept of uh, digital power-ups. And really what that comes down to is uh, there's, there's this article by uh, Katie Linder and, and Shannon Riggs where they talk about this. Like if, if we're, you know, put yourself in a face-to-face -face classroom, you're in front of this group of 30 students and, and you ask one question, you ask one question to the class, and then you're gonna point to each student in the classroom and have each of them answer that same question. 
And then you're going to have each of them comment on one of their peers' responses to that question. Right? We wouldn't do that in a face-to-face classroom, right? That seems ridiculous. But but that seems to be the go-to with online discussions. We post a question and we want all the students to respond to it. So what the digital power-up strategy does is rather than posting one question, we, we talk about a concept or an idea. And then we give the students seven entry points into that topic. So they choose from seven different prompts and they choose two of two to three of those to actually jump into the conversation. And then when they're commenting, they also use one of those prompts as their comments. So you don't see things like, I agree, or that's a great idea, right? And and so what I've seen is when this, this digital power strategy is implemented in these online discussions, that it really produces some, some quality discourse, some meaningful discourse, and, and the co-construction of knowledge between students. I love that that's the thing that Travis uh, chose, discussions. But here's how I think uh, the, here's the genius of, of that is not just using discussions in the conventional way, right? Uh, Travis just went through and gave us three, four, five different applications to use this tool within Canvas. And that's exactly, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, don't overwhelm folks with all of the new stuff, you know, stick with the things that you know. And I even said, I even sent out an email to my corporation. I said, look, (laughs) um, focus on things that you know how to do and then think about how you can reimagine using that thing. You know, so if if you have if you're a fourth grade teacher and you have used Google Slides in your classroom and students have created presentations, how can you reimagine that in, in a, and use it in a different way? And this what Travis is talking about with discussions in Canvas is exactly what I, I, I hope people you know can take this among all of the content from the episode take this away as well the idea that hey we're in canvas we're functioning in this platform let's take something that we maybe have used in one particular way and then get creative about how to use that so in this case discussions uh, i love the gallery walk idea i love all of those sort of uh, more unique approaches to using that tool Travis, who are you following on social media? Some folks out there that might help individuals and our listeners kind of expand their PLN. Yeah, one I just mentioned is Michelle Pekansky Brock. You can find her at Brockansky on Twitter. She's great. She she has all sorts of really insightful ways uh, to frame online instruction, and that's she's been really impactful and helpful for me in thinking about that. Uh, so. At Brockansky, she's a great one. And if if we don't know Ryan Sealhammer, if you're not following Ryan Sealhammer, you definitely should be. He's at R Sealham uh, on Twitter. He is uh, the king of mobile, right? He he's been pushing mobile and Canvas for years and years. Um, he's a InstructureCon rock star. I think he's presented almost every year at InstructureCon. And he, he's been really helpful for me to be thinking about how I should be designing my courses uh, for mobile applications. 
Uh, Once again, we want to thank Dr. Travis Thurston for being on the show. And as always, remember, we don't work for Canvas. Canvas works for us. Yeah.